Thanks for tuning in to the Calvary Now podcast. At Calvary, our mission is to set people's hope in God and engage in the mission of God. Today, we are back in our study of the book of Mark, where we're looking at how Jesus invites us to live in the present with a perspective anchored in his everlasting kingdom. Well, as Ashley just prayed, it is awesome that we do get to gather here and rehearse what we are gonna do for all of eternity, and that is worship our King, Jesus. It's good to see the waters of baptism stirred, and it is great that we, in just a few moments, can gather together and take the Lord's Supper with one another. But before we do, I wanna invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 13. As I shared with you last week, we are going to, we're taking and basically doing a three-week short little mini-series on Mark chapter 13 as we continue our larger study of the book of Mark that's gonna take us through Easter. And while you're turning there, let me remind you ever so quickly that we see in Mark chapter 11, Jesus has made his way into Jerusalem for the final week of his life before his death, burial, and resurrection. And as he makes his way into Jerusalem, he goes into the temple, which was a common practice for him. And there he's teaching, he's rebuking the religious leaders and which we see taking place. And then at the end of Mark chapter 12, we see them leaving the temple. And in Mark chapter 13, the disciples are there. And in verse one, they're kind of marveling at everything that they see going around them. Right? Remember that the temple was the center of life. It was the center of worship for the Jewish people. And so they're amazed. And they say to Jesus there in verse one, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus looks at them and he says to them, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon the other that will not be thrown down. So of course, as you can imagine, as I shared with you last week, this really catches the disciples off guard. And so they do what any of us would have done. They asked him a question. They're like, okay, Jesus, I hear you saying these stones are gonna be torn down. Well, when is that going to happen? And then for the rest of Mark chapter 13, which scholars call the Olivet Discourse, which we also see paralleled in Mark 24 and 25, and also in Luke chapter 19, we see this unfolding where Jesus begins to talk to them about the future. More specifically, he talks to them in this prophetic and apocalyptic type of way that often, actually when we read it, we understand and see that it's pretty different and it's pretty difficult to understand. And through that conversation, we believe that Jesus is helping forecast two future events. The first would be the falling of the temple in AD 70, when the Romans come into Jerusalem and they tear it down and they burn it. And now we know that nothing remains, nothing has been rebuilt. But we also see very obviously that Jesus not just talks about that, literally, but we also see him talking about his future return the return of the Lord when he reconciles all things to himself and establishes a new heaven and a new earth. And so with that in mind, over all of Mark 13, we talked about how different and difficult this type of teaching can be, how hard it is to understand. And that's why last week we gave what I hope was a helpful guideline that wasn't original with me, it's not original with me, but I nonetheless feel that it's very helpful. And that is this, that the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. The plain, main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. And there's a lot of difficult and hard things to understand, but the plain thing that we see Jesus teaching here, and the main thing, 
is that Jesus is coming back. He's returning again. And so he wants to, all throughout Mark 13, he wants to encourage and to exhort his disciples to be faithful and endure to the very end. And church family, that's the main thing of the text. And so as he encourages them, we talked about this last week, as he encourages them, he encourages them with some very plain exhortations. It's like, listen, I want you to stay confident because God is sovereignly ruling and reigning. The one who created the world, the one who sustains the world, the one who came into the world and put on flesh and died on a cross is coming again. So be confident that he is ruling and reigning. He says, I want you to stay focused. I want you to keep your eyes on the eternal and know that the most real things in life are the eternal things, not the temporal ones. So I want you to stay focused and don't lose sight of that. And he says to them towards the end, I want you to stay alert. He wants them to be about the mission. So this morning, that's where I want us to focus our attention. Here at more detailed in verses 32 to 37 as we see that no matter what, we must stay alert. We must be about the mission. So look with me at what the scripture says there in verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, I believe he's specifically referencing his return. No one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This is the word of the Lord. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask now through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would illuminate the scriptures to us, that they might be clear in our understanding and clear in how we are to live our lives. And I pray that you would give us the faith that we need, the wisdom that we need, and the courage that we need to do whatever is necessary by faith to conform our lives to you. Father, I pray that if you would be so kind to us in these moments to help us rightly assess our own hearts, to rightly ask, are we awake or are we asleep? Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart in this moment would be pleasing to you. God, that you would keep me from speaking anything that's not true. And Father, that you would glorify yourself here in this very moment. I pray for Ryan this morning and Samuel as they preach and teach in our campuses. Lord, I pray for the churches in our church family. I pray for Kyle this morning in Two Cities and Rick Spees at Old Town. Father, I pray for these men who I know love you, Lord, work and move in churches like theirs and others that are faithfully teaching your word this morning. God, I pray that you'll do this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as we walk through this text this morning, I want us to notice that Jesus is really trying to help us see the reality of the situation, the reality of the circumstances. And I want to point out two things that I think are critical for us in understanding and rightly understanding, rightly seeing this passage of scripture. And the reality that Jesus wants us to know and understand, first of all, is that nobody knows when the end will come. Can I say that again? Nobody knows when the end will come. 
so don't be obsessed with that. Nobody knows when the end will come, so don't be obsessed with it. I bet if you stop and think about it right now, we've all likely interacted with someone or read some works that are obsessed with the signs of the apocalypse. Man, they are trying to line up the events of this world, the events that we see going around us, and they're trying to tether that exactly to what we see here and in other places like Mark chapter 13. I decided this, this week that I would take a little time and do a little research on some of the examples of those who have said, man, I think this is when the return of the Lord is going to happen. I was reminded of Harold Camping's predictions in 2011. Camping, who was a Christian radio host, predicted that the world would end on May the 21st, 2011. He based that prediction on his understanding of the Bible and numerology. And as you know, May the 21st, 2011 came and it went and the Lord did not return. The good news is though, he made another prediction and revised it to October the 21st, 2011. And well, as you know, the day came and the day went. Perhaps you remember those of us who are a little bit older, seeing Edgar Wisenhunt's book in 1988, The 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. You can find some of those copies today at Goodwill. Or <laughs> perhaps you've heard about when Pat Robertson predicted in the early 1980s that the, the second coming would come in 1981 or 1982, and we could go on and on. Any search will just give you example after example of those who predicted the end of the world or the end of, of, end of this time in Christ's return only to be wrong. Listen, in a way, you know, it seems we can chuckle a little bit about that, but I wanna say to you, I believe that that can be a profound distraction to what matters most. It can be a distraction to what matters most because here's the thing. If we give all of our focus and intention to trying to figure out when the end will come, we won't be thinking about what it means to passionately follow Jesus in the here and the now. It was Augustine who said, he who loves the coming of the Lord is not he who says it's really near or that he who says that it's really far, but he, whether it's near or far, awaits, with it, awaits for it with all his heart. You hear that? It's not he who loves, he who loves the coming of the Lord is not he who says it's really near or he that says it's really far, but he who, whether it's near or far, awaits it with all his heart. Mark 13, 32 reminds us concerning that day or hour, no one knows. There is no special knowledge or insider information to give into people who are locked in and really committed to studying the Bible and studying end times and studying prophetic and apocalyptic literature. There isn't special knowledge. Jesus says, listen, the angels don't know. And he says, I don't know. No one knows except the Father. Now, Jesus, when he says that he doesn't know, I can imagine some of you are raising the question that I would ask, right? What does that mean? What does it mean that Jesus doesn't know? Because that seems a little bit confusing. So I wanna slow down here for just a moment because I know that some of you want to know the answer to the question, well, how is it possible for Jesus who claims to be God not to know something if God is omniscient and knows all things? So I recognize that that can be challenging, it can be a little confusing, and so I wanna give you 
what I hope is just a little bit of theological foundation. Because when Jesus says this, to rightly understand this, we have to rightly think and understand what the incarnation, what it means that Jesus put on flesh and dwelt among us. And can I say to you just a little plug here? This is why I think it's so important for you to come back tonight for the doctrine class that we're doing that you might have right understanding and right foundations upon which to study God's word and answer questions like this one when we come to the scripture. And that's tonight at six o'clock. And so I wanna encourage you right out here in the lobby. We're gonna have tables set up. It's gonna be a great time together. But let me give you this foundation that I hope will kind of help answer this question. When we understand and rightly understand the incarnation, we understand that Jesus is one person, one person with two distinct natures. He is one person with two natures. He is both God and he is man. And it's important to understand that he is fully God and he is fully man. Each nature is fully complete. He is fully God. And as Nielsen put it in the book we're studying on Sunday nights, he says, he grew up from a baby to a boy to a man. He ate food and went to the bathroom. He got sick and tired. He faced the same temptations and struggles that we face. And that to me is some of the best news that we can possibly know because now we know that we do not have a high priest who is unsympathetic with us in what we're going through who can't relate to us, who can't understand our hurt, our pain, our disappointment. When he experiences the brokenness of the world, he weeps there at Lazarus's tomb. He is fully man, but he is also fully God, never ceasing to be fully God. He chose, Nielsen would say, to set aside the glories of the eternal reign for a time. That's what we read in places like Philippians chapter two, which is one of the great Christological passages where it says that Jesus did not regard equality with God to be a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we know that he laid aside the glories of the eternal reign for a time, but he never ceased to be the God of the universe. And that fact is proved in his miracles. Even in his humble descent to humanity, Nielsen would say, Jesus never stopped being fully God. So he's fully God, fully man, one person with two distinct natures. And here's what I want you to see. Things that are true of only one nature are still true of the person of Jesus. So if it's true of one of the natures of Christ, it's true of the person of Jesus. So let me try to make that a little bit more clear. This might make the most sense when you think about Jesus being hungry or thirsty, right? He's fully a man. So in a sense, it would make sense that he would hunger and thirst just like we do and need to be nourished just like we do. But he's also fully God. And God doesn't have physical needs like that. He doesn't need food. He doesn't need water to sustain life. Even still, it's accurate to say Jesus was hungry because that's what was true of his human nature, even if it's not true of his divine nature. It's accurate to say that he was hungry or he was thirsty. Think about it when it comes to things like his temptation, right? We read in places like Hebrews 4, as I just mentioned before, that he was tempted in every way and yet without sin. That's a reflection of his human nature. And thank God for that. But we also read in places like James chapter one, verse 13, that God can't be tempted because of his divine nature. He can't be tempted with evil. And so what was true of his human nature is in fact true. 
that he, of the person of Christ, that he was tempted in every way and without sin. So regarding not knowing the time, it's sufficient to say that that is absolutely true according to Jesus's human nature. And he says he does not know. And what's important, and I don't want you to get lost in this, what's important to understand, even with that in mind, We can get stuck there and miss the point. The point that Jesus is making, resoundingly so, is that we don't know when the end will come, so don't obsess about that. But I also want you to see, as Jesus is painting this reality for us, that while we might know when the end comes, everybody knows that the end will come. So he's saying, be ready for that. We don't know when the end will come, but we all know that the end will come. So be ready for it. You see, there's not a person here. There's not a person here who can hear me and who is listening. There's not a person here who thinks that they're going to live forever. If you're a Christian, you know, you know, resoundingly so, that your life is going to end in one of two ways. You are either going to pass away in this life You will cease to breathe, you will cease to live, and in that moment, you will be ushered into the presence of God, for the scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter five, to be absent from the body is to be what, church? Present with the Lord. It's to be present with the Lord. So your life's either gonna end that way, or your life is gonna end when Jesus returns, right? When he returns, and he says, listen, I'm gonna put an end to this period of human history, so you will either end up going to him or he will end up coming to you. But either way, there is an end to that point. And if you're not a Christian, and you're here and you're wrestling with these claims, you know this to be true, whatever you believe about life after death, you realize that death escapes no man. So whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, and I want you to hear me carefully here, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, here's the challenge. Nobody wants to actually live like they won't live forever. Nobody wants to live like they won't live forever. Let me say it this way. Our most natural inclination is to live our lives like we're gonna live forever because we don't want to think about the implications and the reality of the fact that it isn't. It's the lesson that we just don't want, Christian and non-Christian alike. It's a lesson we don't want to learn. You know, I was talking to Pastor Ryan earlier this week, and we were studying and preparing for this morning, and he was sharing with me that he's been listening to the book, The Lord of the Rings, with his children on the way to school, which is a great thing to do if you have young kids, and they're working their way through the two towers, and he was telling me about an encounter that Gandalf has with Pippin, who's one of the hobbits. And as he talked about it, he was sharing that Pippin had learned a very difficult lesson the hard way by experiencing all the consequences of his wrong actions. And then Gandalf says to Pippin something really profound. He says, the burned hand teaches best. After that, lessons on fire go to the heart. The burned hand teaches best, but after that, lessons on fire go to the heart. Do you hear what Gandalf is saying? He's saying, when you learn a lesson the hard way, You usually gain the wisdom you need to keep from making the same mistake again, right? That burned hand teaches best, and after that, lessons on fire go to the heart. I remember when I was, I think I was around fourth or fifth grade. I can't remember exactly. My parents, being good parents, made us do chores all the time. It always used to frustrate me. My dad would be inside, and he'd be like, go mow the yard. 
I'm like, well, why don't you mow the yard? You know? <laughs> but I went and I mowed the yard, you know, grudgingly so. You know, so I remember putting on my shoes and going outside and getting our little push mower. And as I'm pushing the mower, the ground was a little bit wet. And I got to that place in the yard where it dips down towards the drain. And you know what happens next, right? My foot slipped and it went right up underneath the lawnmower. And it ripped my shoe, it cut my feet. And I thought in the moment, I've just cut my toes off. And so in shock, I kind of run into the house and there's blood everywhere. And I'm looking at my mom. I'm like, my foot slipped under the lawnmower and she's freaking out and she's trying to get it cleaned up. And finally she realizes that they weren't cut off. They were just badly cut. And so she takes me to the hospital and I get all stitched up and everything's fine, right? Do you know what I don't do anymore? I do not cut the grass wet. And I don't cut it with shoes that don't have a little bit of tread on them. You see it? Lessons learned the hard way are lessons that more times than not, you don't mistake and you don't do again. But I wanna share with you, when I say that everybody knows that the end will come and that we need to be ready for that, that's a lesson you can't learn the hard way. You can't learn that lesson the hard way. You see, whether it's when we die or when Jesus, as Jesus says, the master of the house returns at that point, there is no more learning to be done. And if we can't learn this lesson the hard way, then how can we learn that the end is coming for us all? I think there are two profound ways that we can learn this lesson. We can't learn it the hard way because after it's happened, it's too late. So there are two ways that we can learn this very important lesson, that the end is coming and we need to be ready. The first is by listening to what Jesus says and taking him at his word. Jesus is not mincing any words for us. When we talk about main things and plain things, it is clear what he is saying. We don't know when the end is coming, but we know that the end is coming. We know that the end is coming, so be on guard, keep awake, and don't get caught asleep. So we can learn this very important lesson by just listening and heeding the words of scripture and the words of Christ. But listen, we can also learn this lesson by watching the end come for others. While our reality is, we know that that way of learning the lesson is far more difficult. Yesterday was a hard day. It was a day that we came together as a school and as a church to celebrate the life of Harrison Vaughn, who passed away unexpectedly on Tuesday morning, very early. He was 25 years old. He served as a PE teacher here at our school and was the varsity baseball coach. He was a graduate of our school. He was an incredible, an incredible soul who impacted just so many people. A little over a week ago, he got sick and that sickness just continued to progress until he lost his life early Tuesday morning. And I stop and I think about how hard that is, even while rejoicing and knowing that he is with the Lord and we praise him and thank him and rejoice in that. But it's hard. And one of the lessons that we learn in that, that we all wrestle with, 
is it's a stark reminder. Friends, the end comes for all of us and we don't know when. We don't know when. There's not a person here. There's not a person here who doesn't think right now in this moment that the end is far away or that I have more days and more time, more years, maybe many years. Most of us think and we live like that. If I'm honest, I hope that's the case, that God does give us long lives here on earth, making much of him. But listen, it is the height of hubris to live that way because there is no way for you to know, no way for you to know that for sure. So Jesus is saying to you, as the one who is ruling and reigning over all things, who knows the days of our lives, he is saying to you, be alert. Be on your guard. Stay awake. For you may not know when it's coming. You know that it's coming. So be ready. So here's the reality of the situation that Jesus wants us to see. Nobody knows when the end will come, so don't be obsessed with that. But everybody knows that the end will come. So be ready for that. And in order to help us, like really feel it and to understand it more deeply and more intimately, here's what Jesus does. He sets up a contrast for us. He sets up a contrast between those who are alert and those who are asleep. For those who are awake and those who are drowsy and sleepy. And you see that contrast all the way through the text. You see it there in verse 33 where he says, be on your guard and keep awake for you don't know when the time will come. Verse 35, therefore stay awake for you do not know when the master of the house will come in, whether it's in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. You see it there again in verse 37. And I say to you, I say to all, stay awake, be ready, be alert. You know, I think sports can help teach us important lessons, right? And I love sports. I love all sorts of sports, right? But I know many of you watched the Super Bowl a, lo- a couple of weeks ago, and I think we can all agree that the wrong team won. And so <clears throat> as we think about, well, what we can all also agree on is that when you watch those guys play football, man, those guys are ready. They're ready because the, the consequences are great, man. They're playing for the Super Bowl. They're playing for the ring and maybe a little more money and a few more endorsements, but man, they all want to win. And so they're alert and they're ready. They're owning their position. They're owning their responsibilities. Man, I love watching the linebackers play. Sometimes I just won't even watch the offense. I just watch when the ball is snapped and just watch the linebackers move and see all that they're doing and navigating and trying to figure out what's going on, trying to be alert, trying to be ready. Now, I want you to think about the Super Bowl and the quality of the athletes that you see there. And now I want you to imagine in your head a six-year-old baseball team. Now on the six-year-old baseball team, you got little Johnny who plays shortstop and Johnny is really all the time ready. He's got his ball cap on and his, his uniform looks just right, man. He's in the right position. He's got his head up, his knees are bent, he's ready. He's got his glove in a receiving position and he's just kind of ready to go. There's Johnny. And when the action comes, Johnny's gonna be ready. But then there's little Billy, right? And Billy plays right field. 
He might be in right field for a reason. I'm not saying that. If you guys play right field, I don't know. He might be in right field for a reason, right? But you know little Billy, he's out there, and Billy's picking up daisies, man. He doesn't know what's going on. He's just got his head in the clouds, and he's just, man, glad to have the uniform. It's like my daughter. And she's like, Dad, can I play soccer? I'm like, Abby, you want to play soccer? She said, no, but I want those pink cleats, you know? She's a great example of like, man, just being out on the field, like I don't know what's going on. And what happens when that happens? Man, the game, it just passes them by. They're not ready. They're not alert. They're not paying attention. So Jesus is looking at us and he's saying to everyone here, get ready, be alert, stay awake, because you don't know when the end is coming, but you know that it's coming. You might be saying to yourself, yeah, but Will, why all the intensity with this? Why is Jesus so intense? What's the big deal? I wanna give you two reasons why this is so valuable and so important to understand. The first is this, it's because our lives are at stake. Our lives are at stake. As I've already mentioned, once our lives are over, There are no more second chances. The opportunities to trust Christ and what he has done for us on the cross are over. You know, the scripture says that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to to repentance. He is patient and he is slow, but he won't be patient forever. We don't know when, but we know that it's coming. And that lesson can't be learned the hard way. If you go back, and I would encourage you to do so, I don't have time to really dive into it much, but if you were to go back and read Matthew's account of this in 24 and into 25 and into 26, you'd see that he tells some parables to help make this point. He tells the parable of the 10 virgins, which basically is just the bridegroom has gone away. He's been delayed in his coming. And the 10 virgins get word that that the bridegroom is returning. Five of them are ready. And so they light the oil with their lamps. The other five are like, hey, can we borrow some oil? And they're like, listen, no, if we give you our oil, then we're not gonna be ready. And so they have to go away and buy some more oil. And while they're buying oil, the bridegroom returns. And the feast begins. And the scripture says, and while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast and the door was shut. And afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. You wanna know why there's such intensity here at the end of Mark 13 and Jesus is exhorting it so much is because our souls hang in the balance. Now we aren't guaranteed another moment. And this is the most important decision that any one of us could make to surrender and give our lives to the one who died for us, who died in our place, that we might have life and that we might have life abundant. We don't know when the end is coming, but the end is coming. And he's saying our souls are at stake, our lives are at stake, but it's not just our lives. You see, it's the lives of others that are also at stake. God has entrusted us to steward this gospel message. 
Here in Mark, Jesus is helping us see that he's the king over the kingdom, and we all have a role in stewarding what's God, what God has entrusted to us for the advancement of the kingdom. Again, in Matthew, right after the parable of the ten virgin, he gives the parable of the, of the talents. And you know that parable well, right? One was given five talents, he turned it into ten. Another was given two, he turned it into four. But there was one who took the talent, and he buried it in the ground, and God rebuked him for that. Listen, church family, I wanna say to you unashamedly, not only are our lives at stake, but so are the lives of others and we are the means that God has appointed to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Therefore, we're called while we wait to be about his mission. I pray that we will see the lostness around us that will create in us an urgency to take the gospel to others and make disciples. I was reminded of Romans chapter 10 where the scripture says, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? This is why the scripture says, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. God is calling us, this chosen race, this royal priesthood, this holy nation, this people of his own possession to proclaim the excellencies of him who's called each of us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He's calling us, Jesus says, to let our light so shine before men that others may see our good works and give glory to our Father who is in heaven. As Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in verse 20, that we are his ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We are the means Why is this so important? Why is there so much urgency? Because our lives are at stake and the lives of others are at stake. Listen, the gospel is only good news if the gospel gets there in time. And people hear it and they respond to it. It's only good news to us if we respond to that now. So let me ask you, are you awake or are you asleep? Are you alert or are you foggy? Are you on your guard or are you just drifting? I wanna close just by giving you two questions that you can ask yourself and that you can spend some time with in the coming days between you and the Lord that I hope will maybe help you answer that question and help maybe get a little closer to where our hearts really are. The first is this. When I look at my life, who am I becoming? Who am I becoming? Which direction am I trending? Am I trending towards wakefulness or sleepiness? Am I trending toward the mission of God? Am I living my life today that today could be the end? And am I making the most of every moment? I shared with you that yesterday was a hard day. But you wanna know what wasn't hard? What wasn't hard was to celebrate the life of a young man who lived that out, who made the most of every moment to make much of King Jesus. And it wasn't hard to celebrate that. Am I growing in my devotion to God's word, to prayer and to community? Listen, these are the means of grace that God's given us to grow in conformity into his likeness and to his image. Who am I becoming? Am I leveraging that so that I can become more like him 
and fulfill all that God, steward all that God has entrusted to me. He, the master of the house, has left the stewards in charge. But it's not just who am I becoming. The second question to ask is when I look at my life, who am I helping others become? We all live on a mission. Am I on his mission to make disciples or am I on some other mission? What am I talking to people about? Am I more likely to talk to people about King Jesus or am I more likely to talk to people about my favorite sports team? Am I more likely to talk to people about the political climate in our culture? Am I more likely to talk about some political issue or what I think would be best for our country? Or am I more excited about talking about the one who died on the cross and saved me from my sins and who is coming back and going to return forever and reign forever and ever and ever? What's on your lips? What's on our lips? What are we talking about with others? What am I holding out to people as a source of hope or comfort? What am I inviting others to come and do with me? What values am I helping other people live out? When I look at my life, who am I helping others become? Because we're all, can I say this to you? Whether we like it or not, in our homes, in our marriages, in our workplaces, in our schools, whether you realize it or not, you are helping people become disciples of something. You're helping them become disciples of something. Is it disciples of King Jesus? If Jesus could return at any moment, I need to live on God's mission every moment. Every moment. So church family, let us not grow weary in doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So in as much as we have opportunity, let us do good to all. Let us do good to all. Are you awake or are you asleep? Thanks again for joining us on the Calvary Now podcast. We desire that Calvary would be a place of belonging and hope where no one walks alone. If you're not already, we'd love for you to join us in person on either of our campuses on Sunday mornings at 9 or 1030. For more information, visit us at calvarynow.com.